0: Hi there, friends, and welcome to this episode of Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the read thesis process and experience. I'm your host, Amelie Andreas, and today we'll be traveling to Argentina with Spanish major Dashiell Allen to explore the radical legacy of an underground queer magazine known as Somos, or We Are. If you were already missing the sound of Frank's voice, you'll be pleased to know that this episode along with the next few that we'll be posting were recorded by Frank last semester and edited this semester by yours truly. Ah, the fine art of collaboration. Anyways, I'll let Frank take over from here. So, enjoy the episode and I'll see you again at the end.
1: All right. So, welcome to Burn Your Draft. We're going to start by just give your name, where you're from, what department you're in, the name of your thesis.
2: Okay. Yeah. So my name is um, Dashiell Allen. I am a Spanish major. So from the Spanish department and I just um, finished thesis thing. I was a spring fall graduate. So I graduated in December and the name of my thesis was from Somos to Prosa Pleveja, a discussion of sexual politics in Argentina.
1: And why, why did you choose this topic? What, a little bit, what is that about? (laughs)
2: So, okay, it's sort of a complicated question. Basically, when I was studying abroad in um, Argentina in the fall of 2019, I got to take a um, really cool gender and sexuality class, which is something that's not offered at Reed, obviously. Um, And when we were learning about, like, second wave feminism there in the 1970s, I came across a mention of this organization called the um frente de liberación homosexual the gay liberation front um of argentina which was the first um lgbt um political organization in all of latin america
1: Wow.
2: um so i was really intrigued and i wanted to learn more and it turns out they have this really cool publication that's called somos it was like a, a little magazine it was sort of circulated um clandestine clandestinely or like um I don't know how to say that in English even like it was sort of an underground it was like an underground magazine it wasn't public because there was so much police repression at the time Um, and I was just there's I was able to I was really lucky that there was a database that had it um and I was able to access it and I was just really interested it sort of has like this fascinating mixture of different genres um, and it actually was written by some of the most famous Argentinian writers and poets. It's also really cool because um, it was written anonymously, so there's no names under each article or each um, each piece in the magazine. So there's there's sort of like a collective author, um, and that was interesting too. Um, but it was just looking at like challenging notions of politics um, and centering politics around gender. So that was what the first chapter was about. And the second chapter goes in a very, very different direction. Do
1: you know what the impact of not having names with the pieces was? Why that was a choice? I guess like beyond, like what is collective authorship?
2: Yeah. So um, basically it was, well, it wasn't really a choice. I think it was sort of something they felt they had to do to um, sort of evade the police at the time. Gotcha. you. Um, but it also becomes like this interesting aesthetic artistic choice at the same time. Um, I think it's sort of like, they were very much about like anti-hierarchical structures. So the organization, the Gay Liberation Front was made up of many different, um, cells. They called them cells, like 12 different cells, which were like autonomous organizations within the greater organization. And they wanted to structure themselves in such a way that there was no like dominant voice or dominant presence. So I think that's where the collective voice sort of makes sense in that way. It's a magazine written by this community, by the gay community as a whole, but not by any individual um, person. Of course, although at the same time, of course, we know the names of individual writers that were part of the magazine. So there's that as well.
1: Yeah. So after the magazine, what were your next few chapters about? Like, where did you go from there?
2: Yeah. So um, it's just two chapters. Two chapters. The second chapter, I um, focused on one particular poet and essayist. His name is Nestor Perlonger, um, who was a prominent voice in the organization. And who, okay, so first I should backtrack and say the organization existed in a very small period between two dictatorships in Argentina, between 1973 and 1976. And when the second dictatorship came, there was like the organization basically had to be disbanded. And this particular poet was, um, I think he was in prison for like six months at some point as well. Um, Anyway, he went into exile in Brazil and he lived in Brazil until 92, 1992, when he died of AIDS. And the second chapter looks at all of these, like, really strange abstract essays and also abstract poetry that he wrote during the 1980s and early 90s, um, where he just sort of, like, he sort of does a 360 on a lot of the things that the organization said in the 1970s. How so? He uses a lot of... um, a lot of post-structural theorists, like Deleuze and Guattari and um, Foucault, to basically argue that there is no such thing as like a fixed identity or a fixed sexuality and that it's all a process of becoming. That's the phrase he uses, becoming, um, which is different than the magazine before, which has sort of more like an essentialized idea of sexuality, like we are, we are gay or we are homosexuals, mm-hmm. the word they use. Um, and he challenges that and changes that.
1: Is he like introducing the idea of like a spectrum into the conversation?
2: Yeah, I guess you could you could put it that way. Okay. It was sort of um, it was in the context of I think there was like sort of this push for representational politics in the eighties where like what it meant to be gay, particularly like a gay man, was like became like this much more rigid thing where like there was some that were like held up as the model. And um, if you didn't fit that model, you were sort of excluded or not, Um, which like put anybody who would be like gender nonconforming or trans would not be part of that model. I think his idea was sort of to challenge that.
1: So you said a little bit on why this topic, you said you went to Argentina for an abroad program. Mm -hmm. What what did you do in Argentina that led you down this path?
2: Yeah, so I, I had a really great time. I recommend it to anyone once the pandemic's over, whenever that's possible. I highly recommend the CIEE, Buenos Aires program that Reed participates in. Um, It was really cool. I got to take classes at um, a public university there, got to take a literature class. And this class was a gender and sexuality class actually taught by the study abroad program, um, taught by this really awesome um, gender and sexuality professor who um who just sort of like every week we learned about a different aspect of um gender studies but like in an Argentinian context so we learned about how this is what I think fascinated me the most is that leftist politics in Argentina during the dictatorship which is a whole nother conversation that they had these terrible repressive dictatorships but um that leftist politics were very, very sort of machista. They were very, very um, misogynist and um, male-centered and not welcoming of anyone that was not monogamously heterosexual, Um, which is sort of surprising or surprised me because we think of leftist politics in such a different way today, but it had a completely different meaning in the 70s. Um, so that was what the whole first unit of that class was about. And that's how I found out about this organization, which was sort of the, one of the few resistances to that. And they also, they were also allied with, allied with, um, a few different feminist organizations that also had similar goals.
1: So the next question I have is what was the outcome? And I know we talked a little bit about the chapters, but did you have like a, come to the light moment or something where like you found your, what you were looking for?
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, so I had a lot of different ideas, um, when I started off and I think one of the things I learned in the thesis process was that I needed to narrow my focus and I couldn't write about everything, even though the thesis ended up being like 75 pages. (laughs) So long. Well, it still could have been 750 pages. And even in 75 pages, you can't talk about everything. You have to be very concise, especially for a literature thesis. You have to be very concise. Mm-hmm. So at first, I thought I was going to talk about the magazine, the magazine called Somos. And then I was going to connect it to the present. And I thought I was going to argue that the origins of that magazine were connected to um to different queer social movements in Argentina today in the 21st century, um, which I was sort of inspired by. There's, um, I don't know if you know anything about the green wave in Latin America, which is like this, it's, it's basically the whole, it's a movement, feminist movement um, for legalizing abortion and for um, fighting against femicide or gender-based violence. Um, and I was wanted to argue that the magazine was in some way influential to that. That was my first idea. That was completely scrapped. I didn't do any of that.
1: What, what made you, what made you stop doing that?
2: Cause I just, I don't know. I just, I went in a different direction. Um, so then I discovered this collection, this collection of essays by the poet I mentioned before, Nestor Perlonger, that was called Proza Plebeia. Um, and I was just really intrigued by it. And that just ended up being my whole second chapter, which was not, was sort of accidental. Um, I think it was because, I think it was also because the spring fall thesis process, you have a whole summer off between your two semesters. Oh yeah. How is that? For me, it was nice. I think, I think I, I liked it. Yeah. Because I got to, um, During that summer, I got to very, very slowly sort of... Well, I got to leave the thesis and not think about it for a while. That was nice, and then come back to it. And I got to read this book over the summer that I wouldn't have um, read otherwise. I even... I also read um, an entire novel by Manuel Twig, who's a a famous um, Argentinian writer who was also a member of the organization. I read his novel, The Kiss of the Spider Woman, thinking I was going to write a chapter about it and not a word about that novel ended up in the thesis.
1: What is that book on? How, how does it relate with your thesis?
2: Yeah, so it, um, it's funny. It actually came up in my orals a lot, which was surprising because it's not in the thesis, but um, <laughs> it's very connected. So it's, it's this like, it's written almost in the style of a play. It's a, but it's a novel. It's a conversation between two people that are sharing a prison cell during an Argentinian dictatorship. One of them is a leftist militant and the other one is um, a gay man. And it's really just the two of them talking and putting aside their differences. Yeah. And it, it's all those questions about what I was saying before about leftist politics being very, sort of rigid and repressed at that time. The novel um, challenges that and like, they come to this sort of shared humanity for lack of a better word. So it's it's very connected to the same ideas from the thesis. But I guess my point here is just that I think a lot of work goes into the thesis that doesn't actually go into the thesis. So did you have
1: any unexpected challenges to your thesis process?
2: Well, I was disappointed that I didn't have a thesis desk. Um, I was disappointed that I didn't have, like, I only had, like, you know, within my house, within my apartment to work. And that was that was challenging. Um,
1: Not being around a bunch of people thesising, definitely. I've heard a lot of people saying that they're just not they're hitting a wall.
2: Um, yeah. Well, I think it's funny to be a spring fall major anyway, because we are so off sync with everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, one strange thing about the thesis process for me was I sort of felt like everything really, and it wasn't that I was procrastinating. I don't think I was really behind schedule, but everything sort of falls to place in like just one or two weeks towards the end. So I spent a lot of, um, The fall semester, so my second semester, um, like, trying my best to, like, keep up with deadlines and to, like, keep myself organized. I think, you know, read is already very, um, you have to be very, like, independently driven and motivated to succeed at read. And I think that the pandemic just made that worse. I had to really have a lot of self-discipline, which I'm not very good at. I'm a person that puts a lot of pressure on myself and ends up with a lot of like, I don't know, almost like guilt. I would end up not doing as many hours of work each week as I thought I would. I would like in a typical thesis working week, I might end up actually doing like six hours of work when I was supposed to be or supposed to be doing like 12 or something. But then there's one week, then like these magical, like, Period when I did everything, when I spent like 20 hours working on thesis and like sort of left all my other classwork off the side. um, And it came together and I think it came together pretty well.
1: Do you think that you acquired any skills during this process? Like, were any like time management, big project kind of skills developed?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think the biggest thing I learned maybe was just the process of re editing. I never, um, I never spent this much time on one project before, and I'd never spent this much time going over chapters and going over the same words I'd written this many times before. Um, I was very lucky. I had a thesis advisor who um, was very, very diligent and would read what I wrote every single week and send me back um, comments. And then I would go and he would like, I would write like five pages and then he would just trash it. And then I would rewrite it and then same thing over and over again. Um, so I think just like the persistence there was something I had never encountered before. Um, also, the fact that with a literature thesis, I ended up working with, I guess I, I did a lot of research, but I ended up really focusing on less sources than I would have imagined. They're really like I could count on my fingers the main sources of my thesis. So I think just like getting really, really close and intimate with a few, a few theorists and with a few primary sources was was really nice for me.
1: Yeah. And then do you think the these skills and your thesis experience will inform your life after read?
2: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I guess you're in your life after Reed now.
2: <laughs> well, I feel like I'm between my life at Reed and my life after Reed right now.
1: What are you up to right now? What are you, what do you have going on?
2: So right now I'm um, sort of, I'm interested in becoming a journalist. So I'm, I got a, a small award from the Center for Life Beyond Reed to do an internship this um, semester. So I'm interning with a small nonprofit that's called Latina Republic that given me the opportunity to um, write articles about different, different events, different current events in Mexico and Central America. Very cool. So I've been, um, I've been interviewing people from those, those places. And my most recent article was about a migrant caravan that left Honduras in January. And right now I'm writing about, um, the fight for, um, for legalizing abortion in Honduras. So I sort of moved from literature to journalism. And I think that there is a, I think there's, for me, at least, there's a very clear connection there where I was always sort of interested in literary nonfiction. And I could, I would even include what I wrote my thesis about to be literary nonfiction and the connection between that and journalism. So just like, I started to realize over time that the work that the writers I was reading did was very similar to the work that journalists do. And I realized that what I enjoy is listening to people's stories and telling people's stories. And, um, but also like seeing like the literary element of that. Yeah. So that, that's how I see like my thesis Also because I thesised about a magazine (laughs) Um, and there was something really special to me about, I should have mentioned this before. There was something really special to me about the magazine itself. Um, I had to view it on, in PDFs, but they were like PDFs of the physical paper that it was printed on because it was in the seventies. It wasn't digitalized at all. Yeah. So it was um, like written on, on typewriter or something. Um, and it also has like handwritten drawings on it, so there was something really special about the materiality of it to me. were you able to see any of them in person no it 's actually funny i visited <laughs> I visited the center that I mentioned before the the leftist cultural center um and they said that because that magazine was online, they wouldn't let me see it. But I, and then I wanted to, they said there were some things I could see though. So I wanted to see them, but then there was like this really high price that you had to pay. If you were a foreigner to see it, if you were Argentinian, it was like free, but if you were a foreigner, you had to pay. So I um, just said, I was going to go get money from a um, ATM and I didn't come back. So no, I've never actually seen my thesis. Well,
1: Maybe you could work on some Argentinian citizenship.
2: Beautiful, yeah.
1: (laughs) So it was great having you on the show, and I hope that you have a great rest of your semester in this internship.
2: Yeah, thank you. You too. Um, It was a pleasure to be on your show.
0: Who knew the perks of Argentinian citizenship included free leftist archival access? Thank you, Dashiell, for transporting us through time and space and sharing the ups and downs of your thesis experience. Another big thanks to all of our listeners who took the time to tune into this episode. I hope you'll join us again to hear from more alumni and students about what it means to burn your draft. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Amelie Andreas. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from staff member Joe Janaga. Our project manager is Nate Martin, staff member in class of 2016. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020. And podcast start by alumni Henry Gotchlick and Lillian Pham. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.